this is Jesse Kohler sitting in Washington, D.C., and this is the NeuroNoodle Podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen's tech whiz neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman, and author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Seaburn Fisher. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast, and I'm more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have a special guest, Jesse Kohler. He's the Executive Director at Campaign for Trauma-Enforced Policy and Practice. But before we get to Jesse, we got some Patreon love to dish out. We'd like to thank our Patreon business sponsors, as well as our show sponsor, Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies, offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Okay, three things our listeners and viewers can do to help us spread the word of neurofeedback. We got Seabird on the show now. She's impatient. She wants to grow this thing. Number one, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you like the video, please hit like and click the little bell so it lets you know when our new podcasts come out. That little action will turn three people listening into 3,000. I don't know anything about algorithms, but that's what I'm told. Number two, give us a review on whatever platform you're listening to. Five stars is appreciated, but, you know, we'll take four and a half on Apple Podcasts. And three, if you have the means, please support us on Patreon slash NeuroNoodle. There are different levels in which you can support, whether you're a mom, dad, or clinician. There's even an option where you can have your own Q&A with Jake Gunkelman for an hour. This support helps us improve the quality of our content. All right. Speaking of content, we got Jesse Kohler. Jesse, any uh, relation to the uh, Wisconsin people? Unfortunately, no. If so, I would fund the podcast. I would fund CTIP and many, many other aspects of this movement. I'm a big fan of Kohler every every morning. Uh, well, I'll edit that out of post. Seaburn, how do you know Jesse? You wanted me to get him on the show. show. How do you know him? Uh, well, Jesse uh, is uh, spearheading a an attempt to, to help people in Washington understand the impact of trauma. In that process, I wanted him to understand neurofeedback and the brain uh, the brains of people who are impacted by uh, developmental trauma. And we're seeing more and more research on this. And Jesse is a quick study, um, picked it up in a hurry. And um, uh, because I think one of the problems that has been with mental health treatment in general, lay people, people outside the field of mental health, and particularly those who are in positions to fund it, don't see many positive results. People stay sick, particularly people stay impacted by trauma for the rest of their lives. And that's seen as a kind of characterological weakness and it's seen as psychological. And in fact, we have more and more information. This is a brain problem and it's a, and the brain plasticity uh, remains. The brain plasticity remains to the end of our lives. So we can really have an effect on how brains function, uh, even those that have been so severely impacted by early childhood abuse. If you don't know that, uh, then you, it, it feels like good money after bad. 
in funding mental health. If, if there's not really a way to help people um, who have been so badly treated as, uh, as uh, children or as soldiers or as refugees or as whatever, whatever the circumstances are, the impact is first felt in the brain. And so I really, I wanted Jesse to know that, that we really were talking about a brain disorder before we're talking about a mental health disorder. And this reorients the field. Um, Jay has been talking in earlier uh, podcasts and could talk again today, I'm sure, about how often you see elective form activity. That is a brain that's not functioning well. So I just, uh, that was the reason that, uh, and Jesse is very open to this. And as I said, understood it very quickly. So, um, uh, and I, I just want him to take that word out uh, to everybody that he's lobbying to uh, get money into the field of trauma research and trauma treatment. So that's my brief introduction. I hope a reasonable one, Jesse, to you. So, yeah, thank you, Seaburn. Uh, the one thing that I will add is more advocacy than lobbying as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. <laughs> but that matters for funding and resources for the movement, undoubtedly. But very, very fair introduction. Okay, I'm sure advocacy, and I'm sure those words matter. So I, I apologize. No, you're good. Stepping on them. Okay. All right. So, so Jesse, you're in D.C. Uh, like, what's a day in the life? I mean, I don't want to say the term lobbyist, but what, what, what's going on over there? How do we? Do. Yeah, what are advocates doing there? Yeah. So, fortunately, you know, I mean, a lot of my job is really supporting administration at this point for the advocacy work that members of CTIP and that advocates all over the country are sort of mobilizing around, right? But we really try to elevate awareness around a lot of what Seaburn was saying, broadly work going on in communities that improves holistic well-being, and then communicating that to members of Congress. We really work as CTIP on a federal level because we're pretty small, but we certainly hope to also activate work at the state, local, tribal levels as well to recognize that there are better solutions to so many of the issues that our society faces and the ways that elected officials, other key stakeholders are currently approaching so many of those problems. And the best way to do that is for professionals, people with personal experiences to be sharing their knowledge with their own elected officials as constituents. And so our work is really organized and focused around trying to create conditions of empowerment for people with lived experiences, for people with expertise and wisdom to share that knowledge with their elected officials who represent them, need to listen to them, and hopefully through that process, unlock resources to continue to grow the field around the trauma-informed movement. Now, now what's happening behind the scenes? It's let's just take the drug companies. We can have, we can do all this advocacy. And then you got the drug companies there that pull up the Brinks truck. How do we combat that? Numbers, right? Numbers and really, really good solutions that would save money. I mean, you know, I, I look at the work that we are involved in, in various areas as an investment in our society, 
to improve so many of the costs that we are currently struggling with. And, you know, there's currently a, a recognition and understanding that uh, pharmaceuticals first may not be A, accessible and B, necessarily the only solution. And so to be elevating other areas for investment and to continue to grow the field and the research body and to not just grow the body of research, but then to elevate that to the understanding and ears of members of Congress, of you know, other legislative bodies and certainly the executive branch as well, allows for us to begin moving the conversation, moving the needle toward other allowable uses of funds. And then there are certain areas where funding is already um, sort of available you know, we can look at the American Rescue Plan Act and um, funds that were leveraged for COVID uh, stimulus bills. We can look at opioid settlement funds that went to states and municipalities and opportunities to advocate there to help to address a lot of the mental health issues, a lot of the outcomes associated with the opioid epidemic in which neurofeedback sort of up and coming promising solutions beyond just EEG, um, but including EEG, could be leveraged to help grow the field as well. And again, broaden the understanding for elected officials to put resources into other areas beyond just sort of like the old systems thinking. When we think of mental health, this is where we put the money. There are emerging areas that we can also invest in um, that would help to improve mental health, holistic well-being broadly. We talk about the campaign objectives. I'm just reading what you have here. You have two phases. Can you talk about the first one? What's the first yeah, phase so, you're trying to accomplish? So essentially, I mean, the the we continue to reform um, the campaign itself. But essentially, what we're trying to do is have at least one advocate, hopefully multiple advocates, or a community of advocates in each congressional district to develop relationships with their congressional elected officials. As constituents, there is an incredible power because I think I said a bit earlier, there is sort of a need to respond to their constituents because they represent as representatives or senators, their constituents, the people that live in their districts or their state. And so, you know, the, the first goal and what we really tried to do is in create conditions of empowerment within those congressional districts to uplift the work that is going on in the district, the need in the district, and then be those sources of expertise and wisdom for the offices and the staffers. So that way, when there is a bill or any conversation around mental health, there is a resource that the congressperson or their staff can turn to. And then as we continue to cultivate that and as we move along all 435 uh, congressional districts around the country, we are illustrating a groundswell of support broadly for sort of a different use of funding. And then the second phase is through those relationships as we cultivate that, we will develop you know, calls to action that become readily available as Congress begins to become a little bit more sophisticated in its thinking around trauma-informed care and mental health care broadly. And you know, mobilizing around those calls to action, being able to take those relationships that we develop with offices or that our advocates develop with offices 
and mobilize communities around supporting those calls to action to help move them more quickly and hopefully more successfully in Congress is sort of the theory of change that we have. And then that can take so many branches as we move forward through the campaign and respond and create various calls to action. Um, one of the key things that we did at first was try to develop and broaden and expand the bipartisan House Trauma-Informed Care Caucus um, as a body that within Congress holds champions that can sort of promote this from within the halls of Congress, as well as supporting the advocates on the outside. And then as we sort of launch the campaign in February of 2020, which is not the best time to have launched um, any, anything new really, you know, we quickly diverted and sort of pivoted to mobilizing around COVID stimulus funding and are just now starting to come back around different calls to action as Congress sort of resets and moves around different pieces of legislation as the physical health concerns from the pandemic are becoming less and less prevalent or um, you know, less and less like the only priority in Congress, I should say. And you know, the mental health concerns, the, the impacts of the pandemic outside of the immediate physical health concerns start to become more and more of a concern. We are there as a body and hopefully we continue to grow to sort of elevate the need to meet the holistic needs of the population, individuals, families, and communities through different approaches than we currently have today. It, it, it seems to me, Jesse, that mental health is the major concern now in terms of post-COVID outcomes, right? Mental health of children, the suicide rate of children is just, uh, you know, it's terrible. I mean, it's frightening. There's an article in the New Yorker mm -hmm. about child suicide and the rates of child suicide. Um, I'm wondering how you educate your bipartisan committee or your advocacy group for that matter, because uh, this particular field stays somehow outside the realm of awareness to the powers that be. And of course, as Pete will point out, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> I want, I mean, Jay and I have been in this field looking at these results, uh, uh, what can be done when you reach the brain directly, for, well, collectively over 80 years, right? And so it, it, it's time, it's time for two of us anyway, to influence this conversation. And I'm wondering uh, what, what can be done. I, I think that one of the reasons that CTIP started, right? The Campaign for Trauma-Informed Policy and Practice started in 2015 with many members of the trauma or many leaders within the trauma-informed movement nationally, because there was a recognition that within the trauma-informed movement or the various aspects and dimensions of it, a lot of the information was not being communicated with members of Congress, right? I mean, the, the, the recognizing that Congress itself may be a traumatizing body for so much of the population, it's, it's understandable why that would be the case, but to elevate sort of the emerging knowledge, that really needed to change and so, to not just have a conversation with me or with CTIP, but to sort of leverage a lot of the talking points that we have available for people. And we will continue to grow those talking points as our capacity grows, as we learn from people across the country with different levels of experience and wisdom and, and expertise. 
there is the need to have conversations with your elected officials, because again, they need to listen to you. Writing letters, writing op-eds, having earned media, when there is an article, you know, that there are many articles and more local papers that are perhaps easier to create, you know, to, to, to get earned media and spots within, with an op-ed, with a letter to the editor. But when we look at the New York Times piece, for instance, right, that was in the paper over the weekend, there was a sentence in there that was highly disturbing to me that said something along the lines of like, we don't know how to solve these problems that we are seeing with increased, you know, youth suicide and mental health struggles. And the reason that that was concerning is because we may not have the answer for everything, but we do know more and we can elevate emerging knowledge that is out there. It's just how do we get that information sort of out of the bubble that we exist within and into more of the public discourse and dialogue. And that needs to happen through conversation. I mean, there, there's just no other way to do that in sort of the organic grassroots spread of information. We try to do that through informational webinars, workshop series that we put on for free. We keep that information on the internet. We try to it, you know, sort of spread and share resources and emerging knowledge through that. But the conversations just through community as people look for answers to these problems. I mean, there is a catalyst with the emerging health, mental health issues that we are constantly seeing for these conversations to take place in perhaps a way that didn't exist before the pandemic. But these conversations are very, very important to have, and it will sort of expand from there. At least again, that's our theory. And that's how we've seen other movements sort of take hold to get this mass of people promoting an idea concept solution that allows for editors at the New York Times, members of Congress, beyond the direct conversations to begin to look at these solutions more genuinely. Hey, Jay, how do we turn 100 uh, pea shooters into a howitzer? We got ISNR, we got BCIA, we got Thatcher, who was just in front of Congress last year, wasn't he? I don't remember what, the, what, he, what he was doing there, but why can't we get all these guys together and concentrate their efforts instead of uh, having these little dust storms happen? Why can't we get one big whoosh? You know, I don't know how to whip up a giant storm out of all of the little bits of energy, but um, uh, one of the things I think we need to do is educate about the neuroscience underlying trauma. I mean, the, uh, the brain is changed by the experience of trauma. If you jack up the amygdala because of trauma, the, the amygdala is an emotional processor deep in the brain, in the temporal area. And if you do that, you change how the brain functions. It, it, you know, it, it, if you're highly emotionally charged uh, it, it, and somebody gives you a little bit of a startle stimulus, you're very jumpy. Uh, you, you, you literally jump more than somebody else might. And that is visible within EEG. Uh, let's, um, let's give a, little, um, what we have here is a, 
an individual with the eyes open. And you can see there's eye movements, these uh, frontal twitches, lateral and vertical eye movements. But I'd like to point to the back of the head. Um, every time you focus on something, you get a P100, a, a positive wave about 100 milliseconds later at the back of the head. If you're emotionally charged, it gets there early and it gets there big. And we end up seeing these positive is down in EG land. Um, you can it's see right. these waves. Jesse, you have to know that positive is down in EEG. Yeah. Okay. So, so remember, Jay, he's new to EEG. Yep. As well and a lot of people be. All of these waves that you see going downward here are basically the person focusing on another thing. Normally, when you ask somebody to re have an EEG recorded, you tell them to sit there quietly keep their eyes still and focus on a spot. Well, this person is hypervigilant. If you've been traumatized, instead of staring at a spot on the wall, they're looking for something coming. They're, they're, they're vigilant. And these repetitive uh, eyes open discharges at the back of the head that you see all the way through here are not common. And it, it, especially uh, in, in this repetitive nature like this, this person has had trauma. There's no question about it. They're hypervigilant now. Instead of making a resting state rhythmic background alpha, their alpha is attenuated and they're making lambda waves at the back of the head. Now, this pattern, if I see this, I can, without knowing anything about the patient, I can tell you that they've been traumatized. And the other pattern that's en that ends up being uh, uh, equally uh, important, this is an eyes closed recording. And as we scroll through the EEG, the right posterior temporal parietal area here uh, isn't supposed to have that much background alpha. Alpha should be O and O2 and a little PZ. Um, but the, the, this right posterior temporal area that perceives facial expressions, body language, the tone of speech. Um, if that area is idled, you basically have turned off your sensitivity uh, to emotion, it, perhaps in a self-protective manner, but this has to be fixed in order for the person to end up not being somebody who has PTSD on a chronic basis. This has to be fixed. Neurofeedback can fix that. Now, uh, what I what I need to do is essentially create a set of maps of this data because wiggly lines don't mean that much to a lot of people. And what we're gonna do is create a set of maps and this set of maps basically, and let me colorize this with traditional band ranges. The alpha band is a normal background rhythm at the back of the head. And you should see alpha at 01, 02 at the back of the head and PZ kind of these three at the back. Alpha Obviously, is at, alpha is at 10, 10 hertz here. Yeah, this, this, this is an extremely aberrant amount of resting state. The spot that's supposed to perceive emotion and social interaction is essentially idled. If you have this, you know, if you're blind, you carry a red and white cane and you tap around and people know you're blind. Well, Nobody has a cane that's purple or green or something because you're emotionally blind, but this person is emotionally blind. If you close your eyes, you get alpha at the back of the head. His emotional eyes are closed. 
and it 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 basically is going to be a, a functional deficit that that he's going to have to overcome. And until you actually start to get this right posterior quadrant working, uh, the the person's going to end up suffering from their trauma, uh, and and having difficulty with social relations because you know if you can't perceive somebody's facial expression, it's hard to be appropriate with them. So uh, um, the EEG uh, is a is a tool that allows us to see the trauma, and neurofeedback is a tool that allows us to train the brain how it works, and we can fix this with neurofeedback. Now, uh, um, the EEG traditionally is seen as a neurology turf, um, and uh, they look at epilepsy and encephalopathies. If you ask a neurologist, can you see PTSD in the EEG? He will say no, uh, but that's because they don't know the neuropsychological presentation. This is outside of their expertise. And uh, it's unfortunate because uh, they, they could be helping a lot, of a lot of people if they knew what they were looking at. And it'd be good to end up having more interaction uh, uh, through the medical community uh, to be able to identify the brain changes that are associated with their uh, PTSD circumstances, but um, it, it, you know, it, it's going to take time. Thank you. No, I mean, I, I think that, you know, I have a little bit of a background because of a course that I took um, or like a one week training that allows for me to speak with, with Ed Hamlin, that, that allows for me to speak a little bit of the language. I mean, a lot of that, you know, was, I mean, like just, just so far beyond my level of understanding, right? But but the, I think that going back to how Seaburn sort of introduced this topic when I first came on, the, the way that frequency and energy sort of carries through and then Jay to be able to quantify and spell that out and sort of see, okay, this is what's going on that we can see through the energy waves that are taking place. That makes sense. I do think that with members of Congress, we need to start a bit more simply by spelling out yeah. what we're seeing. And then as we engage in relationship and further understanding, that's when we can bring in like, here's what we see, here's the prevalence, and here are some of the solutions that allow for us to sort of combat hyperactivity or dissociation. I mean, the, the two ways that trauma, you know, the, the two extremes of the spectrum of how trauma could potentially impact someone and you know, here is a solution to begin to, you know, more readily get them to be able to operate within, you know, the bounds of, you know. Okay, so, so Jesse, so what's, so what speaks to Congress's personal experience? It's not even, well, let me, I'm just going to play this out for a second. So what, what would be personal stories? even more than experts, right? They want to hear how the mom and dad and the kid did in the district that's their district. And I think, okay, but I, so, so you can, I don't know the politics of this, but I do know that every neurofeedback clinician, and they may populate all 435, I don't know, districts, but uh, could, give you easily 10 people that could speak about their experience with their ADHD child, their learning disability child, their traumatized adult, their 
you know, one, one guy who, who is exploring neurofeedback said, if neurofeedback lives up to what you have said and how I'm writing about it, and it did for everything that I wrote about, and I wrote about failures as well, then he dis described it as a crime against humanity not to have this available, paid for, and available for people. I'm not saying that, but I am. I feel like that's the urgency of our of the of the conversation. And even when I hear Jay say it'll take a while, I, I I'm chomping against that bit, right? Because there are so many kids causing so much trouble to themselves first, to their families, to their schools, to their societies and adults that those kids were. I mean, there were those kids uh, that could get help immediately if there were consciousness and funding for this uh, field. And I just want to know, because letters to the editor, I understand that, but I think we have to be more urgent than that. Um, and, and how to find a way where the experts come in afterwards to help explain to this bipartisan committee what these parents and kids have just testified to. I mean, well, I, have, I have pre and post videos that show what this can do. Yeah. Stories reach the heartstrings, right? I think that we, we want to be careful in sharing stories because we don't want to exploit the stories of trauma survivors, right? I mean, like you, you want to invite people in and there's a whole way to be trauma-informed in the sharing of stories, give people voice choice, the conditions of empowerment and, and you know, I mean, the various principles of, of the trauma-informed movement in how we share stories. But when we can lead with the stories of success, when we show that there is hope for a better future, I, I don't think that it's just stories, it's, it's the, quant the qualifiable data, the stories, the anecdotes, along with what is quantifiable with the data that sort of backs that up. But leading with the stories, I, there, there's a great ex, um, like a business expert named Simon Sinek that did a TED talk called The Golden Circle. And he talks about the golden circle and he talks about the need to lead with why. And the why really is, in, is, is heard and most immediately attributed to through stories as well as some of the data, but that shows the hope of what you're talking about of different methods of therapeutic intervention than where the mind initially automatically goes for most of society, which is usually some form of talk therapy, and that there are these other modalities that have huge amounts of promise that need increased research dollars, that need increased investment, that we can train people in that are not... I mean, there's, they, they cost money, but they're not hugely cost prohibitive with hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of machinery necessary. There is, There are other solutions that we're not hearing about. And I think that leading with stories, connecting to the individual offices, and then certainly when we get to you know, talk, speaking to committees, doing briefings, that's where a lot of times like you'll see more experts than constituents, but to mobilize constituents around individual offices and staffers who work on healthcare, who may have mental health as a portfolio item is helpful. Or just talking to people in the district that there's just these solutions that we wanna to talk to you about because 
We want for other people to experience the benefits that we have as a family, that I have as an individual, or that I have as a clinician. And I want to see this, you know, sort of invested in more broadly as we try to combat list, list the many issues, violence, substance use. Um, you know, I mean, we, we could go on and on suicide that yeah. we are experiencing as a society. And heart attacks and, 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 you know, if, if you look at the health outcome of uh, four or more ACEs, uh, the, the expense of not doing something is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And, and the cost of doing something pales to, it's a small uh, fraction of the, the cost to society of not doing something. And uh, I think that the cost savings uh, end up being something that would probably convince some people in Congress that perhaps aren't necessarily as uh, person oriented as they are pocketbook oriented. And, it, you know, if you look at the, uh, the, the changes in life outcome and the cost of not doing something, it, it's, it looks just downright brain dead not to do something uh, because of, you know, that if you don't intervene and, and fix this, the, the cost uh, uh, ramps up in an exponential way. And uh, um, we, we, we need to, we need to put uh, the, the lack of reaction, the lack of response into perspective as well. Uh, the, the high percentage of people that have really negative uh, uh, later life consequences, cancers and heart attacks. And yeah, it, this, uh, this is um, the ultimate uh, change that we end up offering. You know, the, a better quality of life, uh, fewer the really negative uh, life consequences if you intervene and you, if you intervene early, especially. And you intervene well. I mean, it is a difficulty, right? I was the clinical director of a residential treatment facility for severely disturbed adolescent kids, okay? Boys and girls. They all had trauma. There's one they, they have. I had knew nothing about neurofeedback at that point. I was competing for the dollars that you're talking about, right? To get more, so I could do more talk therapy or get more training for my staff or do something more of the order that we were already doing that wasn't working. Because that's all that I had was more, right? And once I learned, once I had the experience of training my own brain and felt the difference in my reality, in my level of reactivity, in, my, in, in what had, had formed up as a result of early childhood trauma that I had learned to live with, but that had I had less privilege or less, or whatever, you know, I would have been on the other end of this. In fact, I was at one point on the other end of this treatment of, of paradigm. And everything changed in a way that had never changed with anything else. And that was 27 years ago, right? So 27 years, I have been trying to get somebody to listen to the reality of the need to train the brain before the mind could really change. But had I not had that experience, I'd be competing for those same dollars. 
And I would be participating in Einstein's prediction, right? That, that continuing to do more of what we've already done to solve the problem that fails just creates more failure. I mean, he did as much more eloquent quote that I don't have, but you know, it's like of that order, right? So, and that's what we're doing. And that's what I think gets resisted in, in legislative bodies is to put more money into a system that doesn't show results. And there isn't anything else. It's not more pharmaceuticals. The, the pharmaceutical companies have pretty much begged out of this. They're making enough money on what they've already got, which doesn't, which harms people. In the long run, even in the short run, there's an enormous amount of harm. There's very little, um, there's very low compliance with most meds. They're abused. They create liver problems, if nothing else. So, you know, and if we get the fundamental principle that the ACE score really has a EEG or a brain connection, that is the brain that's been impacted before the heart is impacted, then we, or the autoimmune system, you know, the, I mean, the immune system, the autoimmune disorders and so on, um, then we, uh, then we re really reorient uh, the, the way that we go about treating. It's that fundamental, Jesse. It's, and I know that if I didn't know about this, I would be in my former position uh, competing for those funds to do the same thing that I had already done because that's all I had to do. That's all that I knew to do. I, th I think that you're raising the point that there's we clearly don't have all of the solutions that we need, right? And I think that if we can start to invest, Jay, to your point, that return on investment that we would see, that's why I call it an investment and called an investment earlier, into the cost avoidance that we experience as a society or would experience as a society through multimodal sort of like research innovation to see what is most effective in Seaburn and Jay, as, as you've spelled out, we know that there would be greater effectiveness through EEG I, I, and, and neurofeedback. I know that another mode of therapy, EMDR, is very promising as well. And, and there are several that, you know, we are just not investing current dollars in. And Seaburn, to your point, I I also will not be able to say the Einstein quote as eloquently as Einstein said it himself, certainly. But if we continue to try and combat solutions in the same way, we are not going to get new or old issues. We're, we're not going to get new solutions. And so leading with curiosity, coming up, elevating the understanding within decisive bodies. And the other thing that I want to raise is that we're also seeing private investments funneled toward mental health right now. And so the advocacy work can, doesn't just need to be around Congress, it should be, but we're seeing investment from many areas. And so to just capture dollars that are flowing into the mental health space, to continue to expand our understanding as a society of different ways to combat the issues and, and create new solutions or elevate existing solutions that aren't yet like completely understood in the common domain, you know, that's, that's the role of advocacy. That's why I consider myself to be a passionate advocate because in my work in communities, 
I saw so much of the problem without the ability to create a solution. And then as I have, as I continue to learn more in this trauma-informed space and on this journey that I've been on, it is so clear that there are solutions that our society just is, is pretty unaware of broadly. And for us to be able to elevate those to the, to the level of decision makers, whether that be in the private sector, public sector, or through public-private partnerships, we can continue to grow that evidence base and like sort of course correct our current investments. Not that you know pharmaceuticals are totally bad, not that any one thing is totally bad, but clearly we don't have the complete solution figured out. And so to continue to invest in new areas is critical and to have masses, more people sharing their story, sharing the data, elevating sort of the same calls to action from multiple different perspectives and sort of singing along with each other in a single chorus. That's how we are going to build a movement that allows for these investment dollars to flow differently than they currently do. Jesse, my background's corporate sales and there's two reasons why people don't buy. Number one, they're not sufficiently disturbed or not, and number two, they don't understand the offer. Okay. So what is the offer and how are we going to disturb these congressmen to understand that they need to get, you know, votes from their constituents? Uh, it's, it's, if the BCIA isn't currently working with you or ISNR and you guys aren't in contact, that's just a fundamental flaw that none of this is going to work. N number two, uh, and I'm assuming now we'll get something going. Number two, it's almost like we have how many technicians in this country, how many operators operating in their silo? It's almost like there has to be a certain percentage that they'd have to be willing to go to clinics uh, to deal with the underserved community uh, to help with the mental health aspect. So if there's a positive result, those people can contact the constituents. You know what I mean? Everybody, if we do this, there's a positive outcome for, for everybody. There's an end game to mental health. That's why I got into this several years ago. Okay. I don't think people see the end of the light. They don't understand it. So the first thing we have to do is get organized. And the first step again is we have to get whatever organizations and boards that are out there to get with you and say, you know what, here, my next newsletter that goes out, I'm going to make sure Jesse's program is going to be right there. Phase one, phase two, right? Uh, next time Thatcher goes in front of Congress, hey, here's Jesse's deal, phase one, phase two, and whatnot. There just needs to be somebody at the top, whoever it is, don't care to get this thing organized, or Jesse's going to be spinning his wheels. He's going to go off to something else. Somebody's going to come in and replace you and be in the same spot. And we're going to, it's going to be 1972, and the amplifiers are 15 grand, and we're in the same spot. Yeah, I mean, I, I, so the good news to, to the first to the first part, I, I Pete, I, I think that there is sort of this disturbance that is broad enough to cultivate an interest in what we're talking about here, right? I think that the pandemic and the outcomes that we are currently seeing, we saw all of this and the need well before the pandemic. I just want to highlight that. I always highlight this. It, it's not new. The thing is, is that the shared stress and adversity through the pandemic and the outrageously elevated numbers of mental health concerns, physical health concerns that we have seen continue to emerge as we continue through the pandemic has sort of created this collective disturbance that I think 
sets, uh, sets the stage for these conversations. I certainly hope that we can help to organize. I think that CTIP is well positioned. I will say, going back to the first thing you said, though I'm not related to Kohler, would love some sponsorship. But as we continue to grow our base, our foundation to have the capacity to organize at bigger and bigger levels as CTIP and other key partners in this movement, we will continue to be able to you know, support the advocacy itself. Um, to what you were saying, I think that also one of the key misunderstandings that I haven't yet spoken to and, and just want to point to really quickly when we talk about advocacy is that we aren't always talking about speaking with the member of Congress, the representative or senator themselves. They have staff that influence their decisions. And it's not just staff in D.C. There are staff that work in the districts or in the states themselves. And so you can invite staff members to a site to observe what we're talking about. You can talk to staff members and then they sort of convey the information that they take in upward. And so a lot of times, because there are so many staff, that's a great place to start. Who is the staff member that we want to develop a relationship with? Sell, you know, along the lines of Pete, sort of how you outlined it through your experience and expertise in corporate sales better than I can, but sort of, you know, share the story, share some of the data with the staff, and then let that trickle through the system to get to the congressperson where as we do that in every district across every state, there will be an awareness raising at the very least that sort of continues to create fertile ground for us to plant the seeds, hopefully quickly to Seaburn's point, that allows for the investment to start to flow in a way that it isn't currently doing. And we can look across, again, private investment, philanthropy, and spending by Congress and public bodies to all come at this issue together because, you know, I don't think that there are many more important issues that we need to combat as a society than the holistic health and well-being. Mental health is certainly an underappreciated part by a lot of society, perhaps gaining an appreciation, but needs greater investment because it just historically has not been there and it's so and seeped with misunderstanding of near sciences, the neuroscience, the epigenetics, the ACEs and resilient sciences that sort of embody the human condition in a new way. You know, in 2013, Tom Insel, who was then head of NIMH, gave a TED talk. Uh, he wrote an article, he had written an article in 2012 for 2010. Um, so 12 years ago, uh, on changing the whole paradigm of understanding mental health issues from chemical, biochemical to circuitry. Uh, then he gave a TED talk on this and he used suicide as the marker for uh, mental health as, a, um, as whether we were gaining in the field of mental health or losing ground in the field of mental health. And of course, we're losing ground in the field of mental health with everything we're presently doing. And I, I, I'm not including neurofeedback because it isn't widely used yet. And you gain ground in you know, 90% of, your, of the situations from epilepsy to trauma. And there may be real overlaps in, in all mental health concerns with this disorganized, I mean, we're, we see that, with this brain that isn't organizing itself well 
and they can't under the onslaught of early childhood trauma. But Tom Insel is the head of the NIMH. And when he came out and said, the problem is circuitry and we have to find a way, he didn't endorse neurofeedback, we have to find a way, he didn't, didn't bring up neurofeedback, we have to find a way to address the circuitry. He got a blowback from all the people who wanted, you know, and that he wasn't going to, by diagnosis via the DSM, there would be no grants granted for treatment of, let's say, borderline personality disorder. I was um, a, uh, I, I am a friend of Marsha Lenahan's, and she was on every top board of NIMH and said, oh, neurofeedback is coming. Every, everyone recognizes neurofeedback. And I, I don't see that. So this is, this is uh, you know, um, so the this, this circuitry understanding doesn't seem to be there, that this is a brain circuitry problem, fundamentally a network problem, a, a self-organizing problem in the, in the brain that accrues from early childhood trauma. Um, and if you have the head of NIMH saying that, and there's blowback from the community that says, no, I'm studying borderline, no, I'm studying uh, trauma, no, I'm studying epilepsy, these are all different things because I'm studying them and you don't get funding for it because you don't get the people on the, who are, who are okaying the grant, who are judging the grants, you, you know, that are looking at the grants. They don't understand what they're uh, being asked. And so Bessel goes in, Bessel Vanderpoel goes in with grants. Other people of, of great standing go in with grants that have good outcome. They don't get funding because this fundamental principle that was, uh, you know, that we've been working on for decades and that was espoused by the head of NIMH has not been embraced. This, this is you a know, lot to go up against. The fact that we've got transdiagnostic neuromarkers for trauma uh, is I think an important aspect of this. You, you know, the. The biomarkers I just showed you are present in PTSD subjects that come to us with other diagnostic categories labeled on them. The DSM stamp on their forehead doesn't say PTSD. And uh, the, uh, when we look, that's what we see and that's what we can fix and they get better. And the, the fact that they're actually neuromarkers, that, you know, the uh, trauma leaves its fingerprint for us to see. And if we see that fingerprint, it's easily fixable with neuromodulatory interventions. And uh, uh, it, the, the DSM itself is actually holding us back. Mm -hmm. um, and it was declared invalid when it came out as DSM-5. It's just, you know, there's an institutional inertia. Um, if your department has been funded for doing research on a DSM category, with no neuromarkers, uh, you're gonna fight for the DSM to be still there because you're not working on neuromarkers. It, 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 we need to get past the DSM. We need to actually look at the biological markers that we've got, biomarkers, genetics, epigenetics, neuromarkers. If they point to the findings that I just showed you, that these people can be uh, trained to operate their brain in a different way. And, and as Seaburn points out, the, the experience is life-changing. It's not like I got 5% better at, 
at uh, my level of anxiety is that my life has changed. Uh, I, I'm no longer hypervigilant. Um, I, I'm no longer uh, incapable of perceiving affect. Um, I, I can now interact appropriately because I'm actually reading people appropriately. I'm mis not misreading people. So the, it, it, it's a life-changing experience. And the, 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 we've got solid neuroscience neuromarkers uh, that, that end up pointing directly to the fix, independent of the DSM categorization that the person might have walked in the door with. I read AGs, not histories. So I read the data raw, uh, independent of knowing anything but the age of the patient. And I can spot these things reliably. So um, it, it's not uh, some uh, subtle mystery um, hidden inside the brain activity. It's obvious as the, as the nose on my face. You know, I mean, uh, uh, it, it's a genetically linked characteristic um, uh, that that uh, it ends up having itself triggered by the trauma. And uh, when it's expressed, we can spot it and we can train the person to reverse it and, and to become uh, healthy and uh, um, uh, productive in a way that they would never have been. And unfortunately, um, if we don't, later in life, high blood pressure, heart attacks, cancers, autoimmune issues, um, you know, all sorts of really, really serious negative downsides because of the ACEs scores that are higher. I, I, I was in a group that took the ACEs test and I was embarrassed to say I had a zero. You know, how, how the hell do you get a zero? You know, I mean, uh, I, I feel guilty for having a zero, you know, um, I've been traumatized by my zero, you know, but it, it's just a joke. I wasn't traumatized by it, but it was, it, it was, it was shocking to see in the people around, you know, it, people that are professionals and you, you think, well, you know, they've, they've gotten a higher stage in life. Their education is fairly good. And, um, their, 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 their lives must, must've been pretty much good, like, mine was no you know there's four or five levels six levels uh, scattered throughout the room more mm. people end up having aces scores that are high the number of people that has have a zero are, are pretty few and far between really um uh, but i it, it, i think it's important to know that you can see the trauma biomarkers the neuromarkers in the brain activity and reverse them and normalize them. So uh, uh, giving people healthy brain function instead of pathological brain function. And, and with that, right, also a very other, a, an important social game, which is destigmatizing mental illness. Because once it becomes not your character or something fundamentally wrong with you, but a glitch in your brain, people will actually show up for, for treatment. Well, well, this show is going to air in May, which, of course, is Mental Health Awareness Month, because that's the only month we pay attention to this. Uh, what, Jesse, what can we do? Okay, we're speaking out to our to the interweb here. What can people do to help you out, Jesse? What can BCIA, what can ISNR, what can Bob Thatcher, what can the whole community do to get together 
to help you out in mental health awareness month? Because if we can't do it in this month, we're never going to do it. So in this month, we are actually, or when this show airs, at least this month, we are launching a campaign in partnership with a few states called We Heal Us, which you can go to wehealus.org. There are opportunities for anybody. We, we want to engage the community in sharing expertise and knowledge. And so you can sign up for a spot, give a presentation. We will record that, sort of create more awareness. I think that you know, to the point where the director of NIAMH speaks to the circuitry issue and gets blowback, I think that we see where it's very easy to attack one person, regardless of that person's standing. When there is a groundswell of support, thousands, millions of people, it becomes a lot, even when there is blowback, it at least becomes easier to stand up there and say, all of us believe in this, right? And so that's where that groundswell of support and people singing the same song becomes very important. So I certainly encourage people to sign up for the National Trauma Campaign and look into Press On, which is about community coalitions as we work to prevent trauma in the first place, prevent ACEs, prevent developmental adversity more broadly and trauma throughout the lifespan, as well as the intervention and treatment sides that are necessary as we fill out the entire public health pyramid and look at these issues more holistically. And you can do that at ctip.org. You can use our navigation bar and sign up and join the larger community. We will continue to have calls where we talk about various aspects of the trauma-informed movement, which you can also find on the website, follow us on social media, and just let us know. I mean, share your story with us, with your elected officials, with others, create conversations and grow awareness and this knowledge base in your community, one person at a time, as well as speaking to your elected officials' offices at all levels as we try to raise awareness, increase investment from various sources into this important information and just help us continue to grow the knowledge. Like you said, Pete, I think that May is as good a time as any to you know build support so that way it's not one month a year it's all the time april's and pretty good june's pretty good july's pretty good they all seem good to me right i mean let's just take care of this 12 months out of the year 365 days and you know um 366 right. years too don't forget about february 29th every fourth <laughs> year but you know i think that that's just where we need to go but working with the month of May, working with the awareness that is currently built into that month and expanding outward and then doing the same thing in June and then July and working through the calendar until the next year comes around. That's where we got to start and doing so in community, recognizing you're not alone and recognizing there's a heck of a lot of hope for a better future is critical as we all move forward together. Jesse Kohler, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. Learn from y'all. We, we thank you all for listening to NeuroNoodles Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsor, Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Register now at eegstrategies.com. Mary, how you doing? Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That little click and like is the difference between three people or 3,000 people learning about neurofeedback. 
Hey, do you have an idea for a topic or a guest? Please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. Where do they get this kind of coverage? I'm shocked that there aren't more of them getting this kind of coverage. Especially coverage with Jay Gunkelman for one hour. Oh, man. (laughs) Cue the music.